0: Welcome to Practical Christian Living.
1: In other words, Christian, if you are a real, genuine, born-again Christian, part of the new covenant, then you know the right thing to do. You may be a brand new Christian. You may have just given your life to Christ. And yet written in your mind and written upon your heart are the laws of God, and you know the right thing to do.
0: When we become born again in Christ, born in our hearts is the righteousness of Christ, the knowledge of what's right and what's wrong. When Jesus came, He fulfilled the old law. And as part of the new covenant, God wrote the new laws on the hearts and minds of those who call themselves His. With part two of our message out of Hebrews chapter 8 entitled, New and Improved, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson.
1: When you and I get to Leviticus and we get to the end of Exodus, where he starts to break down the, the blueprints, the written blueprints for the tabernacle. I got to tell you, some of the most difficult Bible studies, I'm not saying it's least effective. I'm just saying some of the most difficult Bible studies that we can have are in the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus. Because it gets into the temple is this big and that big and put it here and put this kind of curtain on it and that kind of wood and this kind of gold. And we, we, we study it and go, Okay, I get it. And sometimes it seems like it's repeating it. It tells us how to build the right side, then it tells us how to build the left side and it does the left side, the right side, and left side. Tells us exactly how you and I are, are supposed to do it over and over again. But when we learn that these things are a type of something in heaven, then we find there really is application and it becomes a valuable study for us. A lot of repetition still, but it becomes a valuable study because these things were a pattern of that which is in heaven. In other words, the first five verses here are telling them there's a heavenly sanctuary. It is a better sanctuary because it is the real sanctuary. And the things here on earth are only a shadow and a type of that sanctuary. Don't give the real up for something that is a pattern and a type to return to them. He now moves to the second aspect of the chapter, which is the new covenant, the the new and improved Verse 6 But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on a better promise. The better covenant Jesus gave us. Jesus said on the night that he was arrested, when he gave the command for communion, he said, This is the cup of my blood and the new covenant which I give unto you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the new covenant was given to us by the blood of Jesus. And that new covenant supersedes the old covenant. We no longer need the old covenant of Moses because we now have the new covenant given to us by Jesus. And it's by a better promise. What was the promise of the old covenant? The promise in the old covenant was if You will keep my laws and keep my statutes and do all the things that are here. Then I will bless you and be with you and I will never forsake you if you keep them all. Here's the problem. They didn't keep them all. And so they found themselves discarded as a nation. We'll talk more about that in a minute because it's going to come up in the text. They found themselves discarded as a nation. Now, you and I don't live under that promise. If you will do all these things, then I will do all these. The promise that we live under is a better promise that if we get to know him, if we invite him in, if we are born again, there are certain things that will change in our lives. There are certain qualities of this new covenant. Now we pick it up in verse seven, for it says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Had the first covenant been okay, had that law not have failed, there would be no reason to have a second covenant. If your iPad's working great, you don't need a mini. That's the idea. Now, you might want a mini. You might end up getting a mini, but you didn't need it, okay? Your original iPad was fine. Well, that's what he's saying here. If the law had been faultless, if the first covenant had been faultless, there wouldn't have been a need. It was truly obsolete. Verse 8, Because finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Note that the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God, well, let's read on a little further. We'll come back to him discarding them. Verse nine, not according to the covenant, which I have made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant And I disregarded them, says the Lord. The promise that they had was if you do all of these things, then I'll do this for you. But if you don't do them, then I'm not going to do that for you. And so they were discarded. Now, when we think of the nation of Israel being discarded, that's kind of a scary thing. In fact, Romans chapter nine talks about it. I'm going to kind of paraphrase what it says. See, this covenant, the new covenant even, was made with Israel, that Israel What we're going to talk about with this new covenant being born again was for Israel. But we Gentiles, some of you here may be Jewish. In fact, we probably got some Jewish people who are here. You guys are a cultivated branch that has been discarded. And we Gentiles are a wild bunch. I mean, wild branch (laughs) that has been attached to the cultivated vine. And we are now growing as that wild branch. But then, and you can read it, it does say this at the end of chapter 9. It's and this is this is paraphrased, but here's what it says, "But don't you wild branches get uppity? Don't you think that you're better than the cultivated branch? Because if God could put you on the vine and cultivate you being a wild branch, how much more can he reattach the cultivated branch?" And then he says, "And he will, for all of Israel, will be saved. There is coming a day when as a nation, they will realize the Jewish people that they have rejected Jesus, their Messiah, and they will receive him and be part of the new covenant that you and I are a part of. When we consider the nation of Israel today, a couple of things, World War Well, the final World War, World War three or four or five or whatever it is. okay, Armageddon is going to be fought around Israel. The Bible tells us that the final battle that will take place will take place around Armageddon, which is right outside of the Valley of Jezreel. There have been many battles fought in the Valley of Jezreel, and there'll be the final battle that will be fought there around Israel. The landmass of Israel. What is the smallest of all of the, the states in the United States? Rhode Island, you guys knew that. That's good. I wasn't sure, so I was asking you. That was a pull the crowd kind of a thing. Israel, the nation of Israel, is smaller than the state of Rhode Island. Did you know that? And yet it is where all of the controversy is at. Rhode Island, barely ever in the news. Israel, in the news all the time. Now, also, there are 7 billion people on planet Earth. Now, I don't know if somebody counted them all, but they approximate, right? That'd be a long count. In fact, I don't have enough time to count to 7 billion. 7 billion is such a big number. There are 7 billion people on planet Earth. There are 12 million Jewish people on planet Earth. That's a rather small number compared to 7 billion. There's 12 million. About 6 million of them live in Israel. About four and a half live in the United States. And the rest, the 2.5 that's left, the three that's left are dispersed in different places around the world. That's a small group of people that this promise has been made. But now this promise is made to the cultivated branch, which is about 12 million people today. But there are 7 billion wild branches that could be cultivated in. We owe a debt to the Jewish people because we have been included in and are able to be born again. And again, I'm giving you a New Testament principle. The Bible tells us that we owe the Jewish people a debt because it was from them that the Messiah was brought out. Don't forget that Jesus was Jewish and it was from the seed of Abraham that all of the world has been blessed. So they have been disregarded right now, but they will be reattached one day and they will join us. Now, this new covenant, there are three aspects that are revealed here and he doesn't just bring them out of nowhere. He quotes Jeremiah. Jeremiah said the day's coming when there will be a new covenant. And here's what the new covenant will be like. And we learned three things about the new covenant. Number one, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The first thing that we're told about the new covenant is that we are going to have the laws written on our minds and on our hearts. They had the laws written on tablets. They had the laws written on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. They had them written there. Where you and I, it's in our mind and in our hearts. In other words, Christian, if you are a real, genuine, born-again Christian, part of the new covenant, then you know the right thing to do. You may be a brand new Christian. You may have just given your life to Christ. And yet written in your mind and written upon your heart are the laws of God. And you know the right thing to do. Now, a lot of Christians will justify their own sin. They know the right thing to do, but they have reasons why the wrong thing to do is the right thing to do for them. Okay. And I have heard every possible sin that is out there justified. I had a lady come to me one time and she justified adultery. There were two different couples in our church. Uh, the, The gal from one, the guy from the other had an affair. And they were planning on continuing to go to the church. And we went to them and told them, you guys can't come anymore. You can't come to the church. You just destroyed these two marriages. You're an adulterous affair. And the girl told me this. It's okay that we've gotten together because this is true love. That's what she said. I said, what is this, the princess bride? No, wait a minute. That's not I didn't say that. But Really. She justified her own sin for true love. That adultery is okay because of true love. You know how long true love lasted? Two weeks. Two weeks and that little couple that had gotten together with true love were gone and done. She knew it was wrong to have that affair, even though she justified it in her mind. And you might be justifying some activity today, some action today. But if you were to really sincerely if you were to really honestly look at is this the right thing to do or is it the wrong thing to do, you already know. Part of counseling, I don't do a lot of counseling anymore. We have guys at the church that do a lot of counseling. But one thing that you learn with counseling is that people already know the answer to what? They know the answer they want to hear and they try to manipulate it to get that answer. And they'll go to as many counselors as they need to until they finally get it, by the way. Or uh, they have their justifications for why they could do it. One of the things that I would do when I would counsel was to say, You have any kids? What if your kids were in this situation? What would you tell them to do? Well, <clears throat> I said, My kids, it would be different for my kids and just for me. See, I was, it's kids, they're kids, they're my kids, and uh, it's different for them. I would tell them to do the opposite of what I want to do, but that's different because, say, they knew. They know what's right. We know what's right because God's written on our hearts. So that if you, in all sincerity, putting all manipulation aside, And putting all selfish desires aside, if you say, what's the right thing for me to do in this situation with my boss? You already know. It's written on your mind. It's written in your heart. What is the way that I'm supposed to treat my wife? You already know. It's written on your mind. It's written on your heart. You know those things. They are already there. That's part of the new covenant. And that's really good to know because I don't have to go and, and learn the Ten Commandments. It's funny to me how many Christians can't give the Ten Commandments, by the way. If you just, you know, man on the street interview after church, you start asking people, what are the Ten Commandments? People go, let's see, there's don't lie steal and cheat and you go, no, you got two of them. In fact, you got to get four or five Christians together generally to remember what all of the Ten Commandments are. And then there's some 600 commandments in the law. And that's just, that's bringing them together. There's more than that if you break them down. More than just 600 of them if you break it down. Well, Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you. One commandment. The new covenant has one commandment. You know what it is? Love one another. So that What's the right way for me to treat my wife? I got to love her. What's the right way to treat your boss? What does love tell you to do? What's the right way to treat your employees? What does love tell you to do? And so if you walk in that way, you you fulfill, Romans 8, Galatians, you fulfill all the law and and the prophets by loving one another. It's written on our minds and it's written on our hearts, okay? The second aspect is in verse 10, verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. The second aspect of the new covenant is that being born again is about knowing God. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. Getting into heaven is like getting into an expensive club. It's not what you do that gets you in. It's who you know that gets you in. That's heaven. Jesus said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. There are many religious people today who call Jesus Lord, who operate on Him based upon going to church, being part of a denomination, the rituals that they go through and do. Maybe some of you guys here believe, I go to church on Sunday, yes, I'm a Christian. And you believe that you're making it to heaven because you go to church. Bad news for you. You can't make it to heaven by what you do. You have to enter into a relationship with Jesus so that from the least among us to the greatest among us, real, genuine Christians, every one of them knows God. Because if you don't know Him, you're not saved. And so from the least to the greatest, we all know God. And so that our teaching is not, you Christians know God because you already know Him. Now, I think that this is one of the most amazing parts of salvation, that God The creator of the universe, the awesome, incredible, amazing God wants to know me. He wants to know you. I have a couple friends of mine who know Billy Graham. They've taken trips out to the cove and they've gone and they've met with him. And they do every so often the the ultimate in name dropping among Christians. They'll say to me, yeah, I was talking to Billy Graham. And I go, stop, hold on just a minute. You just dropped Billy Graham's name, okay? I was talking to Billy Graham. Well, I could respond to them and go, yeah, I was talking to God, the creator of Billy Graham. <laughs> I can one-up them. That's the ultimate name-dropping. It would be great to know Billy Graham. I don't think I ever will. He's never invited me out to the cove to speak. He'd never been invited me out to go into his house and meet with Billy Graham. But... I might never meet Billy Graham, but I know the creator of the universe. I know the one that it is ultimately important to know. And so Jesus said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, for I will say to them, away from me, for I never knew you. It's knowing him that's important. He said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and the son whom he sent. So real Christianity entering into the new covenant is knowing God and we're all going to know him. First of all, written on our minds and in our hearts is the law of God. And second is that we know Him and have that relationship with Him. Why would you ever want to go back to the temple? Why would you ever want to go back to a distance? Why would you ever want to go back to giving your lamb that you brought to some priest to go and give that lamb for you when God's law is written on your hearts and you know Him? Now, one more aspect of what it means to be part of the new covenant. It says in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. God chooses to forget your sin. Now, I have trouble forgetting. Let me rephrase that. I can't remember what I want to remember. I can't remember where my keys are, right? I come in the house with my keys down. Now I spend who knows how long looking for keys, all right? I can't remember what I want to remember. But if you offend me, I hang on to that like a puppy holding on to a pork chop. (laughs) I have that. I have trouble letting that go. I have trouble forgetting. I might forgive and I may try to forget, but I have trouble forgetting about it. God is able to forget your sin. God can't remember it anymore because he has remembered it no more. Can, Can God do anything? Ah, huh. I didn't hear very many people say no. That's a trick question. I had that asked me one time, can God do anything? And I said, um, uh, yeah, God can do anything. And they said, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Well, let me think about that now. <laughs> if God makes a rock so big he can't move it, he can't do the rock, move the rock so he can't do anything. And if God can't make a rock so big he can't move it, then he can't make that rock so he can't do anything. So it's a trick question, right? The reality is, no, God can't do, do everything. Why? Because God can't sin because he is totally holy. God will always love you because he has declared the love that he has for you. And God has forgotten your sin and he will not remember it. That means that you know something God doesn't know. God doesn't remember your sin, but you do. And your conscience is struck by it. But God's operating in your life as if that sin never happened or never took place. Wouldn't it be good if we could forget it? Wouldn't it be good if at the moment we said, Lord, will you forgive me for this sin? And it was really forgiven. It was gone from our memory banks. (laughs) We weren't struck with our conscience anymore. Well, that's not the case. So we keep reminding God of what we did. Lord, you remember when I did that? And God says, I didn't, but now I do. He told me again. (laughs) So the three aspects of the new covenant, right? He will write His laws on our minds and on our hearts. Everyone from the least to the greatest will know the Lord and he will be merciful to our unrighteousness and will no longer remember our sins. Again, why would you ever give that up? To to lean towards legalism, to move away from that to some written law, to interact with God based upon if I do this, then you, God, will have to do that. I would rather be under that new covenant of of mercy, of grace, where God says you don't deserve it, but I'm going to give you this. Or over here, you say, God, I want what I deserve. And if you're going to say that to God, give me some warning so I can get as far away from you as possible because (laughs) I don't know what you might deserve, but it's not going to be good. Under the law, you say, give me what I deserve. And under grace, you say, Lord, thank you that you have blessed me beyond what I deserve, that you've given me this in spite of of what I deserve and God's grace is so superior. And so we now come to the last verse in this chapter where he says this in verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, not pretend obsolete like the new iPhone or Android or Samsung product that makes your old one obsolete, but the real obsolete in that he says a new covenant has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. There's a little bit of prophecy there. He says that which is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is written in 64, 65. The temple is destroyed in 66. It was as if God said, let me get rid of that temptation. Because if I don't, there are always going to be those Jewish people, especially. See, as Gentiles, some of us lean towards legalism. Could you imagine how much more difficult it would be if we were Jewish and had grown up in a home around the law? We would have even a harder time leaning towards the law and believing that it had something to offer us. So God said it is passing away. Now, I had said in the beginning of the study that we don't have the temple there. And this isn't a temptation for most of us, and it's not. But there still can be a temptation for us to be legalistic. A temptation for us to believe if I do this, this and this, then God will do this, this and this. We want to live that way. Lord, OK, I'm going to read my Bible every day. If I read my Bible every day, then will you do this for me? Lord, I really want to go to Hawaii. So I'm going to give you so much time. Then will you help me to go to Hawaii? We want to live by the law instead of by grace. Instead of by saying, Lord, I'm part of the new covenant. I'm living under the grace of God. And we never want to exchange that. For that which is obsolete. The old is flawless. The old is obsolete. By the way, we've learned about the law now that the law has been changed. We've learned that the law is annulled. And we've learned that the law is obsolete. And now has been replaced by that which is no longer nor can become obsolete. The new covenant. He won't come out with the new improved new covenant in six weeks, six months. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank You for this everlasting covenant that we have been given that is new and improved over the law. Thank You that we are not bound by the things of the law, but we are living for You. And Lord, we thank You that You have written these things upon our hearts, that we can know You, the awesome God, the Creator of the universe. And Lord, that, uh, that You've forgotten our sins. And Lord, again, We pray that we would live worthy of the calling we have received in this new covenant. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
0: We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com.